Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. Good morning. This is the word of God to us today. It's from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God to us. Awesome. Man, Sarah Hall throwing bows with the scripture reading. (laughs) Dang, girl, you got a job. Uh, How are we doing today? Oh, that was terrible. Well, I mean, at least we're talking about gender and sexuality with you guys not being willing to help me at all. What could go wrong? Uh, Hey, before we dive into this, is it cold in here to you guys? Because I feel like if I'm cold, that means that you guys are about to die of frostbite. It feels like the penguin exhibit at the zoo. Could could we get somebody to turn down the AC so that uh, I don't get emails? Um, All right. So if you got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25. We're also going to dip into Genesis 3 and a little bit of the New Testament. And as we dive into this today, let let me just say up front that today as we talk about marriage and gender and sexuality, we're talking about mystery. We're talking about mystery. And because we're talking about mystery, it makes sense that when we talk about marriage, sexuality, and gender, we're on contested ground, contested ground. And we're on dangerous ground. But here's what I want you to see. We're, we're also on holy ground. When we talk about the mystery of being men and women and all that it entails to be embodied souls as men or women, we're talking about things that bring us right to the edge of the wonder and glory of God. We're talking about people made in the image of God. C.S. Lewis said a lot of amazing things. And one of my favorite things he ever said was this. He said, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations and cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is as the life of a gnat. But it's immortals with whom we joke and work and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. 
Hey, I get that there's confusion in the room. I get that there's resistance in the room. I get that there's some of you guys that are nervous about where we're about to go in the room. But I just want to start by saying gender and sexuality are a part of the mystery of being, a part of what broke at the fall, and a part of the hope of the gospel. And I want to say four things up front before we get to the text, four things that I think are really important on just a pastoral level. Um, The first thing I want to say up front is whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I want to point out that what we know because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that the living God actually loves you. He loves you, and he doesn't love a future version of you where you've got everything worked out and you've perfectly arrived at sanctification. The living God loves you in the midst of the hot mess that you are today. Whether you feel like you're a dumpster fire or you feel relatively stable today, what's demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus is a pursuing love, a knowing love, and a sacrificial love that's actually offered to you today in Jesus. So that means you can stop before we even get into this and you could actually breathe and you can rest and you can have a posture of openness and receptivity to what God has to say. The second thing I want to say is that this is going to raise as many questions as it is going to answer questions. Um, One prominent theologian talked about gender and sexuality in a series of 89 lectures. And I know that if we were to do 89 lectures on a Sunday morning about gender and sex and marriage, I would get fired. I would be the only one preaching on Sunday morning. But the point is, this is a really complicated and comprehensive topic, and we're not going to get to all the nuances. We've got sermons in our database that you can go back and listen to about the glory of singleness. We've got sermons about the practical dynamics of marriage and fighting for healthy relationship. Today is going to be a bit different. It's going to be overview, and it's going to be helping you guys get an introduction to a theology of gender and sexuality. In addition, Because this is so complicated and because it's going to raise questions, I want to give a plug to community. And I want to say that Frontline seeks to be a place where you can actually wrestle in good faith with questions, with doubt, with skepticism, and with resistance. You can be here trying to figure out what the Bible says, and you can be here trying to figure out what you believe. And the best way to try to wrestle with those questions is in the context of Christian community. That's the best way to open our Bibles and arrive at wisdom. Now, as we get into this, here's what I want you to see. When Jesus taught about marriage and sexuality, when Jesus was asked questions specifically pertaining to divorce, and that led to an open door to talk about marriage, Jesus did something that was incredibly brilliant and unbelievably helpful and almost entirely neglected in the church. When people ask questions about marriage and sexuality, Jesus did two things simultaneously. He pointed us to the beginning And Jesus upheld the beauty and power of Genesis 1 and 2 as it relates to God's vision for what it means to be fully human. And at the same time, Jesus pointed ahead to the end, and he pointed to the new heavens and the new earth as the ultimate fulfillment of what God started with marriage and sexuality in the beginning. 
And so today what we're going to do, quite simply, is we're going to talk about the beginning. We're going to talk about the big picture that includes the end, where history is heading. And then we're going to do a little bit of work around what does this mean for us? Practically speaking, what do we do with this? So number one, let's talk about the beginning. And when we get to Genesis 1 through 3, there's three things, or excuse me, four things that really matter. All four things are crucial if you're going to arrive at a biblical vision a God-honoring vision of what it means to be men and women and what marriage is. The first thing we got to hold is the unity of man and woman. What do we share as human beings? The second thing you have to hold in tension is the diversity of men and women. What are the things that are different between us? The third thing that we need to understand is how the fall affected us. And then fourthly, you need to have a vision for the interdependence of men and women. In a culture that's all about enmity, where you have like dude bro culture and hookup culture and incel culture and radical feminism culture, what we have at every turn, both with men and women, is the stoking of fires that relate to competition and comparison instead of a biblical vision that leads us to actually delighting in the God-designed differences between men and women. So with Bibles open, let me try to dive into this today. Let's talk about the unity of man and woman. Two weeks ago, if you weren't here, we, we did a deep unpacking of what it means to be in the image of God. Let me just remind you of Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one highlights what men and women have in common as humans. Genesis chapter two highlights the beautiful engendered differences between men and women. Genesis one verse 27 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Pause here with me. Hear this. It's so important. Let it get into your heads and your hearts. God's vision for man and woman carries a profound radical, cultural shifting affirmation of the deep equality of men and women. Both man and woman are made in the image of God. And what we saw two weeks ago is that to be in the image of God is to have a relationship with God first and foremost, that just as cars were made to run on gasoline, we saw two weeks ago that human beings were made to run on God. To be an image bearer of God means first and foremost, for the image to relate to the original as our highest good. Secondly, we saw that to be in the image of God is to reflect God. I, I love nature, especially wild places. I love being in the mountains. I love being in the ocean. I love sunsets. And all of nature carries the fingerprints of God, but no bit of creation, including angels, reflects the image of God like man and woman does. And in addition, we saw that to be in the image of God is to represent God, that Adam and Eve were made as vice regents to rule creation under the authority of God as a king and a queen who would fill the earth with the glory, beauty, creativity, and justice of God. Now, I want you to just let that sink in because even in 2023, that's a radical concept. And in the ancient world, it blew people's faces off. A biblical vision for man 
manhood and womanhood doesn't start with all the things that's different between us. It starts with what we share in common. Image bearers of God, equal in value, dignity, and worth, both in relationship with God, both reflecting God, and both representing God as we actually use the capacities that God has given us to take dominion and fill the earth with glory and beauty. And what I want you to see is that so often in history where things go profoundly wrong between men and women and in culture is when we, when we negate what we share in common. I want you to think with me about the ancient world. Let me give you the hall of infamy for bad teaching on gender. It goes back to guys like Plato. Plato said that the worst fate for a man was reincarnation as a woman. Aristotle, who so deeply affected Western thought, had a terrible idea of gender. He said that females are imperfect males accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. Historian Josephus once wrote that the woman is inferior to man in every way. You see this twisted idea of gender throughout many places in the Quran. Let me read one section to you. The Quran says men have authority over women because Allah has made one superior to the other. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and send them to bed apart and beat them. And sadly, when you read some of the patristic fathers, there are some ways in which church fathers sometimes were influenced by the thinking of culture more than the thinking of the Bible as it related to gender and sexuality. Now, here's what's really crazy. We can practice what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, and we can look back at ancient history and feel like we've arrived. But here's the reality. Even though we've made strides in seeing the dignity of both men and women in our equality, modern culture is failing in much the same way. Every single second, $3,000 is spent on pornography that objectifies women, that glorifies violence and rape and incest. Sex-selective abortions continue to be an epidemic worldwide. According to the UN Population Fund, there are 143 million girls and women that aren't alive today because of that. In the United States, <clears throat> one in three women have experienced severe physical violence from an intimate partner. This stat blows my mind. During the Afghanistan and Iraq war between 2001 and 2012, we lost 6,488 United States troops in that war. During that same period on our own home soil, 11,766 women were murdered <coughs> by current or ex-partners. And I want to pause here and say, there is no space whatsoever in the Bible or in faithful Christian community for the abuse of women on any level. And I want to say to my sisters in this room that if you're in a situation that's unsafe, if you are experiencing violence or intimidation, if you're married to a bully, the elders of this church would delight in helping you to seek help and to be in a safe place. And I want to say to my brothers in the room, 
that if you on any level with physical violence and coercion or using your loud voice are intimidating and bullying your wife, you're not only out of step with the gospel, but if you don't repent, you're actually moving towards the judgment of God the Father against you because he's an advocate to protect his daughters. Brad Wilcox, a sociologist at the University of, of Virginia, has, uh, has done a lot of work on marriage and family practice, and in particular, how that connects to religion. And what he found is that in America, nominal Christian men, nominal Christian men being defined by men that check on a box participation in a theologically conservative denomination, but don't go to church, don't read their Bibles and don't pray are exponentially more likely to divorce their wives, exponentially more likely to abuse their wives. And he found that men that are a part of a conservative, theologically conservative denomination who are actually committed Christians who read their Bibles, pray and go to church at least three times a month are the least likely group in America to lay hands on their wives, the least likely group in America to divorce their wives, and their wives show exponentially level, higher levels of satisfaction, intimacy, friendship, and safety in their marriages. And I want to say that it's a tragic thing. It's a tragic thing. In fact, it's a demonic thing when men that don't know Jesus and check on a box that they're a Christian, not because they actually believe in Jesus, but because their parents were Baptist or their parents were Presbyterian or whatever. It's a tragic thing for those men to hear enough of the language of headship in the Bible to think that that means entitlement or subjugation of their wives, but they know nothing of Jesus, who is the head of the church, who loves, protects, serves, and dies for his bride. And so we want to be a culture here. We want to be a culture here where we teach biblical male leadership of the home, which is not entitlement. It's sacrificial, Christ-exalting, serving, and honoring. Now, this is where the agreement turns to you guys looking for torches and pitchforks. There's another way that we really miss the unity of men and women, and that's with radical and reactionary feminism. Now, I want to note, it's important to say this, I want to note that especially first wave feminism was a right response to inequality and abuse. But sayings like men, like women need men, like fish need bicycles, and the culture that we live in today that's sort of a second and third wave permutation of feminism that sees all masculinity as toxic does great disservice to men, is horribly destructive for boys, and actually is demonic because it fuels the same kind of enmity between men and women that macho, nonsense, fake masculinity fuels. And the vision of God, the vision of God is not enmity between men and women. The vision of God is mutual delight and celebration and collaboration for the glory of God. This leads to the diversity of man and woman. There's profound unity, but there are differences. And Genesis chapter 2 fleshes out just a few of those differences. Let me give you just a few. We see that Adam was created outside of the garden, 
And then he was placed inside of the garden and given a unique calling to work and to keep it, to work and to keep it. And those two words, work and keep, come from really interesting Hebrew words that get married together in the Bible. The word work comes from the Hebrew word abad, and the word keep comes from the Hebrew word shamar. And what's interesting, if you do a word study in the Old Testament, working and keeping are almost always connected to the duty of priest in guarding and protecting the sanctity of either the tabernacle or the temple. Adam was given a unique responsibility as a guardian, as a protector, as a defender, a gatekeeper, and a bodyguard of the temple that God was creating in the garden. Both Adam and Eve were viceroys with authority. Both were called to fill the earth with the glory of God. But God gave Adam a unique responsibility to actually protect and keep. And he was designed with a sort of holy aggression that's gone profoundly wrong. A holy aggression to defend and protect the garden, his wife, his future children, and the culture that he and Eve were called to create together. And I want to submit to you that men having 70 to 90% greater upper body strength on average is a biological parallel to a spiritual reality. This is why that both in the Old Testament, the role of priests and the New Testament, apostles and elders were restricted to men. Not because men are better, not because men are more spiritual, not because men are smarter on any level. We all know that's not the case, but because... The role of fathers is the role of a protector. It's the role of a guardian. It's the role of facilitating for the flourishing of those in their care. And the Bible affirms in the New Testament and the Old that Adam's order in creation being created first does not make him better than his bride, but it does give him unique responsibility to initiate, to lead, to protect, and to serve as one who will give an account to God. And what we're going to find in Genesis chapter 3 is that when both Adam and Eve sin, the first person that God comes to talk to in the garden is first Adam. That means, brothers, you and your wife are both responsible for how you love your kids and engage your family and protect your marriage But when Jesus wants to have a conversation about the direction of your family, the first conversation he will have, brothers, will be with you. Like it or not, that is the reality. And to shirk that responsibility is to shirk part of the unique engendered glory that God has called you to walk in. But at the very same time, the Bible affirms that it's not good for man to be alone. For the first time in Genesis, God says something is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And Eve was created as a helper. Now, let's talk about helper because that sounds like the least sexy possible word to describe the unique engendered glory of woman. But when you get to the Hebrew, when the Bible starts to talk about a helper fit for him, it's combining two words, two words, and they're both really powerful. Helper is translated from the Hebrew word ezer, and corresponding to him is translated from the Hebrew word konegdo. And those two words together are really beautiful. Ezer is used 21 times in the Old Testament to describe a lifesaver or a rescuer. And of the 21 times it's described, it's used two times for woman and 19 times for what God does for Israel. 
To be a helper in the Genesis account of cosmology and man and woman is not to be a personal assistant. It's not to simply do domestic chores. It's not to get Adam a latte after a hard day of bringing the glory of God into creation. It's to be a lifesaver and life giver who is equal to him and who actually feeds into his unique glory with her unique glory. It's a beautiful, complementary relationship that reflects the power of God to rescue. One of my favorite books I read this year that I would love for all of you guys to read, increasingly I'm aware of my complete lack of ability to get you guys to read the stuff I want you to read. But if I had that superpower, which would be one of the superpowers I would ask, it would be flying and then being able to get you guys to read stuff. I would have you guys read The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favalli. Listen to how she puts it. At last, he immediately recognizes in the silent declaration of her body, speaking of Adam, that she is both like him, more like him than any of the other earthly creatures, and not like him. Their difference is complementary, but asymmetrical. This is not a mirror image or a polar opposite. She resembles him in their shared humanity, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. But she differs in the feminine form of her humanity. Genesis affirms a balance of sameness and difference between the sexes. This is a delicate balance that is difficult but necessary to maintain. Most theories of gender lose this balance, veering into the extremes of uniformity, men and women are interchangeable, or polarity, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Both extremes lose the fruitful tension expressed here in Genesis. Or to put it as the original author of Genesis put it, he is ish, man. She is Isha, woman. They are alike, but they're different. And they're called to fit together in ways that glorify and magnify the beauty of God. In addition, we see that part of Eve's unique and gendered glory is that she's a life giver. She's a life giver. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, it says that the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Let me just make a quick note about God's language and human language. God speaks... And order is created. Man speaks and order is named. It's named. He doesn't create the order. He simply names that which God has already brought into being. So when Adam calls his wife's name Eve, what he's doing is coming alongside the unique essence that God gave her as a woman. And he's simply speaking it out loud. This means both biological, relational, and cultural life-giving are a part of Eve's unique design. That the hospitality of God himself is modeled in the womb, in relationships, and culture. And just as we see that biology is paralleled in the spiritual with Adam, biology is paralleled in the spiritual with Eve. There's something profound that's revealed about God in the way in which Women have the capacity to nurture life for nine months in their womb to great sacrifice to themselves and labor with pain to bring that into existence. One of the things I want to fight for in the life of our church is to push against a culture that belittles motherhood, that dishonors motherhood. I want us to be a church that delights in the glory of motherhood as life-giving that's reflected of the living God.
And that's not just limiting life-giving mothering to the biological function. The reality is, is that all of, De- all of Eve's daughters, whether they have biological children or not, are called to be life-givers. Life-givers. And what we find is that both in the unity and diversity of man and woman, they're independent to one another, or they're interdependent on one another. And their union is glorious. Let me read to this. Let me read you this again. Genesis chapter two. And the rib, or literally in Hebrew, the side that the Lord had brought from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Let Let me point out a few things. We could talk about this for weeks, but let me just mention a few things. She is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, meaning she is like him, but she is woman, not man. She's unlike him. And in both her sameness and her otherness, something mysterious is happening. As they stand face to face, we're looking at an icon or a picture of something that goes way beyond just romantic love, procreation, and marriage. Something deep and something mysterious is being enacted. Eve compliments Adam in her likeness and in her otherness. And God himself is the one that walks his daughter Eve down the aisle to her husband, Adam. And Adam breaks out in poetry and in delight as he sees her. And in their one flesh union, which includes both sexual intimacy and the intermingling of their lives in marriage, in that beautiful portrayal, what we're actually seeing is a glimpse of God and a glimpse ultimately of Jesus and his church. Let me read to you from a great theologian, Henry Bavink. He puts it like this. God made the two out of one so that he could make the two into one. One soul and one flesh. The two in oneness of husband and wife expands with a child in three in oneness. Father, mother, and child. One soul, one flesh, expanding and unfolding the one image of God. United within threefold diversity and diverse within harmonic unity. Their unity is the threefold cord that binds together and sustains all relationships within human society. There's a profound picture that's happening in that one flesh union in which God is not surprised by sex, but he creates it. He blesses it. He blesses the dynamic of pleasure. He blesses the unitive dynamic of sexual intimacy. He blesses the procreative dynamic of sexual intimacy. He calls it all good. And in the midst of that, what we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a reminder that men are not to compete with women nor, men, nor women to men, but we're connected together in the wisdom of God. It says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman's not independent of man nor man from woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. Now, brothers and sisters, let me just say this before we move on to what happens at the fall. One of the deep pastoral burdens I have is that you guys would reject hot takes and open God's word because it shows truth and the truth of his word is actually beautiful. Truth is compelling. Truth is powerful. Truth is liberating. And what we find in the word of God is an affirmation that it's actually good to be a man. It's good to be a man. 
And we find in the word of God that it's actually good and glorious to be a woman. That God loves men in masculinity. He loves women in femininity. He affirms the goodness of marriage. And at the same time, we find on every page of scripture that because marriage is this beautiful picture of the glory and splendor of God, Satan absolutely rages against it. He hates men and masculinity. And he hates women and femininity. And the reason he hates both is because they reflect the God that he's rebelling against. And in the grand creation story, men and women who are equal in value and dignity, but not interchangeable or the same nor independent, the differences are divinely ordered and glorious to tell us a story. To tell us a story. But the story has a huge wrench thrown into it in Genesis chapter three. And we're gonna spend a couple of weeks talking about the tragedy of the fall. I just wanna mention a few things quickly as it relates to gender and sexuality. First of all, we see that Eve helps Adam to sin. The ezer goes wrong. The ezer goes wrong. It says in Genesis chapter three, verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Like her power and her influence and her glory gets bent towards ends that are destructive. And lest we believe with Tertullian that like, you know, Adam was off doing a quiet time. He was communing with the Lord and being obedient and chivalrous. Let's just read the story. Adam fails to watch and keep. She turns right to him, to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam goes passive in his unique calling to protect and watch, and Eve twists her calling to be a helper, and in that twisting, their communion with one another is forever twisted with sin. And what we find is that naked and unashamed leads to realizing that they're naked and feeling shame. Like, think about that. They were created to be face-to-face -face partners, to actually share a depth of intimacy and communion that was to be reflective of the triune God. Not the same as God, but a picture of God. And in that profound intimacy, they were made to actually body and soul be together in intimacy to delight in each other. That's the nakedness God is describing. It's not just physical nakedness. It's the nakedness of soul. It's actually that they were created to look into each other's being. And because of sin, they then start hiding and covering up in shame. And now shame touches every facet of our relationships. We hide, we wear masks, we pretend, we avoid. We're afraid if anybody actually did know the depths of our being, they would reject us instantly. And then Adam twists his unique calling by instead of sacrificially laying down his life for his bride, in, in this moment, he could have like repented. He could have pled with God that he could bear the reproach. But look what Adam does in chapter three, verse 11. God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Look at verse 12. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Hey, hey listen, like the two sides of one coin that all of Adam's sons have wrestled with ever since, side one of the coin is violence. 
It's that entitlement and that pride that thinks that might makes right and that ladies in our lives exist for our gratification. And the other side of that same coin is equally demonic. It's that passivity that refuses to actually stick our necks out and do what it takes for the flourishing of those around us. And the reason gender and sexuality become so fraught with confusion and pain and difficulty is because the greater the gift, the more jacked up it is when it goes wrong. C.S. Lewis talked about it's impossible to have a very bad cow because cows aren't endued with very much power. But to have a very bad man is very terrifying and to have a very bad angel is even more terrifying than that. The gift of gender and sexuality was so mysterious and so profound that when that breaks, it becomes one of the deepest places we hear the groaning of creation. We hear it in profound loneliness, in shame, in the darkest addictions of our lives where we destroy our own lives and devour those around us. It's been found in this room in the heartbreak of divorce and infidelity. It's found in our disordered desires, our confusion. It's found in just biological realities that bring pain to the world, like the pain that many of the people in our church have experienced with infertility and the loss of kids. It's found in broken relationships and broken homes. It's found in those stats that Brad Wilcox quoted as he talked about nominal Christian men who claim the Christian faith while actually as fathers and husbands treating their families like crap. And in the midst of all that horror, here's what I want you to get. Like the grace and faithfulness of God doesn't start in the New Testament. The grace and faithfulness of God starts with creation. It's all a gift. And then the grace of God actually enters into the brokenness of creation as soon as they sin with a promise. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. God says, I will put enmity, speaking to the servant, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the son of the woman, will bruise your head. He's gonna crush you. He's gonna bring an end to all the things that broke. He's gonna make straight what you made crooked and you are gonna bruise his heel. You're gonna injure him, but he's gonna kill you this is the first preaching of the gospel. And this leads us to the big picture, to the big picture. If you're a nerd and you've watched or read Lord of the Rings as many times as I have, you have your favorite parts. My favorite part of Lord of the Rings is when Sam says to Frodo, I wonder what kind of tale we've fallen into. I think that's a powerful theological question. I think that's a powerful philosophical question. I think it's a question we don't think about enough. What kind of tale have we fallen into? What's behind the world that's all around us? Like, is this a world of chaos and indifference? Are the nihilists right? Is this a world of just dead mechanical reckoning? Is this a world of karma where it's just sort of a wheel that keeps cycling again and again and again and it doesn't progress towards anything and you just get what you deserve? Is this a world of cold intelligence or is it the world of the deist that God like made it and then it was too much for him and he just washed his hands of it and said, good luck? Is the end of all things death and after death 
a void that consumes everything you ever loved and every great piece of art and anything that was ever beautiful, reducing to ashes everything that today we would say should last forever? What kind of story have we fallen into? What is this world? A better question is, what's behind this world? Well, the Bible is really clear in its answer to that. The Bible begins with a marriage, and friends, it ends with a marriage. And that's not accidental. That's not like, that's not like God, you know, on the reverse end of writing the Bible, deciding, hey man, that was pretty cool that that just worked out like that. That's the intentionality of the sovereign author of scripture to begin the Bible with the marriage and to end the Bible with the marriage to proclaim to us that what's behind the world is not indifference, that the story that we're actually in is a love story. It's a love story. And I don't mean romantic love between a man and a woman, but I mean that romantic love between a man and a woman is deeply connected as a signpost that points to a deeper kind of love that's actually behind all things. That it's love that motivated God to create the world. It's love that motivated God to redeem the world. And it's love that will lead God to finish his work in the final consummation where Jesus stands with his bride who will be without spot or wrinkle in perfect communion with him. Sexuality and gender are deep and mysterious because they're a sign, a visible embodiment of an invisible truth that marriage itself can't complete you because marriage itself, though lifelong, is not permanent. Jesus said marriage will be done away with, that singleness is a holy calling in the church that points to what's coming for us. Jesus is really clear that marriage is not the ultimate, it's the penultimate. It's simply a sign that's pointing to the telos of people, which is that you and I were made for the kind of communion, delight, being known, intimacy, fellowship with God and with one another that marriage is simply the best picture of. And we see in the Old Testament that God describes his relationship with Israel as the relationship of a husband who keeps pursuing an unfaithful wife. He pursues, she rejects. He pursues, she runs to other lovers. He woos her, she ignores him. And in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up and his cousin John the Baptist points to him as the bridegroom that's come. And Jesus describes his own ministry as the bridegroom who's actually pursuing the bride. And what Paul says that's really interesting, reaching back to the beginning and pointing to the end is this, Ephesians chapter five, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's him quoting Genesis. But then he adds this in verse 32 that makes sense of the whole story. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Jesus comes in the fullness of time as a better Adam to pursue a new Eve, his church. And the end of the Bible is not weird, Simpsons-esque, disembodied, floating through the clouds and playing harps. The end of the Bible is a marriage supper in which the church is presented to Jesus to actually experience the kind of knowing and delight and love that marriage is simply a picture of. That we were made to know and to be known. 
Ray Ortland puts it like this. The gospel reveals that as we look into the universe, ultimate reality is not a cold, dark, blank space. Ultimate reality is romance. There is a God above with love in his eyes for us and infinite joy to offer us. And he set himself upon winning our hearts for himself alone. And the gospel tells the story of God's pursuing, faithful, wounded, angry, overruling, transforming, triumphant love. And it calls us to answer him with the love that cleanses our lives from all spiritual whoredom. The point of marriage is not that we would worship marriage as the end-all be-all. And as beautiful as that one flesh mingling of lives is, as powerful as as that is, and, and frankly, as normative as that should be in the church for almost all of us. That's not belittling singleness. I've preached on singleness. I can't preach on singleness and marriage in every sermon. Go back and listen to what we've said about singleness. As normative as marriage is for most people in the church, as powerful as marriage is, we do a great disservice to ourselves and to the institution of marriage when we ask marriage to be something it was never designed to be, namely our completion. Marriage exists to point us to a greater reality, the reality of Jesus Christ and his love for his church. Marriage affirms the goodness of creation, the goodness of children, the goodness of our bodies, the goodness of sex. Marriage points to Jesus' pursuit and love and sacrificial care of the church as husbands grown repentance and in servant-like Christ-exalting leadership of the home. And in all those good things, in all those beautiful things, we're reminded that if you're aiming all of your desires at marriage, as your salvation, or as your eschatological hope, you're putting a lot of bricks in the backpack of marriage that it wasn't designed to carry. Marriage is a good gift, but marriage is not ultimate. And marriage will be done away with. You will not be married for all eternity to your spouse. You will be wed to Jesus as a part of the church. And, and brothers, if that creeps you out, I'm not talking about an individualistic, you and Jesus, you know, riding on a white horse, just the two of you on a beach. This is a corporate reality. It's a corporate reality, but it does include pure, unbelievable, unimaginable intimacy and depth and beauty that Jesus has for all of his people. And the reason the church needs to get this right for our kids and for our city is because marriage is one of the most powerful and beautiful pictures of the gospel that we could possibly point to. Gender and sexuality is so charged because if Satan can blow that up and obscure that and twist that and disorder that, it makes it that much harder to get a glimpse of what people were made for. And what we want as a church is to actually embody these realities in a way that actually points the world to their hope, which is not 1960s stereotypes of family values. It's something deeper and more timeless than that. It's what Jesus has accomplished for his bride. And it's what's coming for us on the great day. So the stakes are high. There's spiritual warfare involved in being a husband and being a wife. And certainly there's spiritual warfare in being a 
faithful Christian single that's walking in sexual purity. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of all that, Jesus doesn't ask us to engage things that he doesn't also give us the power to engage. So I want to take a second. I want to pray for you. Father, I, I pray, um, oh man, for, for all the gaps in the room. There's people in the room who had dads that were the stats on nominal Christian men who like claimed religious affiliation but didn't repent of sin, didn't love their wives, weren't a safe space for their kids. Oh God, have mercy. Have mercy on them and have mercy on the, the wake. Lord God, there's men in the room, me included, that need help to follow Jesus into the restoration of families, to loving our wives and loving our kids. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. God, there's so many ladies in the room that have been caught up in narratives that point to abuse and objectification, but offer no solutions, offer no healing, offer no reconciliation. Lord Jesus Christ, would you give them something of more substance? Lord, there's single people in the room that are believing the live big romance that the one is out there just waiting to complete them if they can find them. And it actually is the exact opposite marriage, message of Christian marriage that the only one that can complete them is the one that died for them. So Lord, we, we just quite frankly don't even know how to ask you for help here. So we just humble ourselves and say, things are a hot mess, will you meet us? Will you give us a couple places in the room where we need to lean into repentance? God, if there's places where we've bought into um, machismo, faux masculinity, will you just put that trash to death in our hearts? Where we've bought into passive masculinity, would you put that to death in our hearts? Where sisters have picked up a narrative of enmity with their brothers, would you put that to death in their hearts? Would you restore interdependence and mutual delight and God-glorifying relationship in the church? And not just in the home, but with brothers and sisters, spiritual brothers and sisters. And would you make this a truly gender-redeeming church as we try to follow you, even with our questions and things that are unfinished in our lives? So help us, we pray. Amen.